Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Freeman Means Business Wonder Women in Business podcast. Everyone has a story, and we encourage everyone to own their stories. On our podcast, we give a voice to those women whose story is moving, meaningful, and compelling. We share their stories with the world so that in their shining, they give permission to others to shine as well. Today's guest is Kelly Fitzsimmons. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to have you here. So I rarely um, invite people on that I know really well. Um, Sometimes I do, but I try to uh, not look you up, not learn a lot about you before the podcast. So that way I'm as excited to hear about you from your, uh, straight from your mouth in your own words as my listeners are. So why don't you with that, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am a serial technology entrepreneur. Um, I got into technology at the tender age of 25. So that's almost 25 years ago, right as the, uh, the World Wide Web was starting to break. And uh, I was in the right place at the right time um, and created a series of different companies, uh, three that in three different industries all about seven years before those industries took off. So when the internet broke, everybody was super excited about marketing and getting their names out there and brochureware. And I was concerned about security. So in 1996, I stood up my first company, Sun Tzu Security, which was really aimed at trying to prevent what I saw was inevitable, which was the hacking and and intellectual property theft that was going to be happening online. It's just as easily as we can go out, someone or something can come back and visit us. So that was what really prompted me to enter that industry and did that again in 2006, coming into the voice interface space way before anybody else, before Alexa and Siri. uh, There I was trying to make sense of this because I have dyslexia. And so computers and the internet is fundamentally broken for me. I've always wanted to talk to my machines. And so that was the initial impetus behind that that journey. And then in uh, 2012, stepped over into virtual reality. So we were looking at it not through the gaming um, perspective, but really wanting to tell stories, stories that matter that we couldn't tell ever before, because now we had this ability to tell it in the first person and that you could choose your own adventure and take on a perspective. And so our entire hope and desire with that was to to tell novel stories. And uh, since 2012, that's what we've been doing. So six companies, 25 years. Yeah. (laughs) You're pretty amazing. Uh, And I shouldn't even say pretty amazing. You're amazing. No qualifiers, no doubt about it. That's, that's really great. Such forward thinking, progressive, um, you know, able to envision what might happen and then it happens and you're prepared. So how, how great is that? Well, I like to get to know you, the person. So what, what brought you, what made you interested in technology? Like, how did you grow up passionate about this? Yeah. So the, the easy story was that I started programming when I was 11. Um, my father got me a computer and, um, I was fascinated by it, but this, I'm, I mean, I'm staring 50 in the face. So when I was first programming, um, you know, the closest thing we had, at least as far as my imagination, there was some aspect of the, of DARPAnet and such around. But um, as far as I knew as a small kid, the, to what we know as like telecommunications today was a telex machine. And I would go to his office and I would 
search up news and print it on the stop matrix printer. And I was just like, so in, I was just so amazed by what it could do. And, and it, it sparked in me this desire to create things, to create worlds, to, to really take my imagination um, and see what I could, what it could do with it. Um, and that, that's really been the cornerstone of all of my, my business making is that I have this sort of artistic side to me that instead of going into the arts, I went into entrepreneurship and I use that generative side of my imagination to really envision what could be, see the bad side, see the, see the shadow side of it, and then work really hard to try and prevent it. Um, and, and so that's pretty much how all this came into being. So first of all, that's an incredible path. What, wow, 11 years old and coding, that's just amazing. Secondly, I love your reference to Jung, Carl Jung, the dark side, the shadow side. Mm-hmm. We all have that and, and everything uh, has that. You were able to see what could come of the new developments. And third of all, I love, you know, first, you're, you're progressive, you're creative, you're in a, in a world that most people think creatives don't belong. Um, if you're into Dan Pink or any of his books, mm-hmm. his book, The Whole New Mind, that's what came to mind when you were saying, you know, I'm creative, I'm right-minded, yet here I am succeeding in the world that people think it's it's really reserved for those who are left-minded. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're- I shouldn't. I, I I so disagree with the whole idea that you have to be left brain to be in computer science. It's one of the most com- it's one of the most creative venues. It's just a different template. It's just a different medium, but it's pure creativity. And I mean, I've had the over the years the blessing of knowing some of the some of the real technology greats and um, going to their homes and and seeing who they are when you know their cameras aren't rolling and almost to a person. Um, they have art in them. A lot are accomplished musicians. Um, the, yeah. the aspect of our brain that works with um, computer languages is the same that works with languages and the same that works with music. I mean, it's very much part of the same cortical area. And so at Neohapsis, which was um, one of my companies that I was the CEO of, I remember very distinctly, we came up with a policy that we would not hire anybody that didn't have an instrument. If you weren't musical, we, you probably didn't have the level of skill that we needed for you to be able to do the kind of work which we did, which was very deep level code audits and uh, black box testing and required a lot of creativity and out of the box thinking. You couldn't just be all about the code. You really had to be more about thinking through ideas. Um, and, and have much more of an artistic sense. It, but it's not part of the popular way in which we look at Right. Technology. Common thought is that you're, you're not conceptual when you're, uh, you're not big picture, you're not visionary or creative when you're into the minutia, the detail, the, you know, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really great comment that you made. So give pause and let's think about that, folks, because we do tend to put people into buckets. Um, I know actually a lot of doctors and lawyers who are excellent musicians or um, can, you know, they paint, you know, so they use these areas as outlets for the stress that they incur in their day-to-day lives, but it's, they're good at it. I mean, it comes Mm -hmm. naturally and easily. So what you say is true. 
I believe all humans at our core are artists. We, we have this artistic instinct. And up until the age of about six, seven, it shows up for everyone. And after that, depending on how we're raised or the stories that we're enculturated with, we start to lose it. But when you start to, to meet people later in life, particularly in the sciences that have had real breakthrough success, almost all of them have never lost that childlike wonder and awe. Um, that that aspect of the artist that really comes through. And, you know, sometimes it's teased in cop- popular, you know, media, like the revenge of the nerds. <laughs> like we've got all these yeah. strange, but the, the, that, that childlike wonderment, um, the sort of the nutty professor aspect of it, what that's really, that archetype is really the artist. It's, you know, willing to break convention, willing to break rules to see what works and not just trusting it on face value. Right. Um, Uh, When I meet with people like that, and I often do in my work, um, I find that I make a concerted effort to tap into that person that you're describing. Um, Hopefully they haven't buried that person or lost that youthful exuberance for creativity. But that's where I connect best with people because I, you know, I probably have some, I'm very logical, analytical. I have that, but I enjoy my creativity, my visionary, my I'm not risk averse at all. Um, Mm -hmm. I try to find that in the people that I sit across from me. You know, I tap into those questions that aren't canned and aren't um, just all about the work, but really more about their passion, which might be hidden. Yeah. 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 And most of us do hide our our passion. It's, and that's one of the really sad pieces. It's like, choose your major, choose what bucket you go into. And a lot of don't fit into any good bucket. And um, a lot of us, you know, self-select into entrepreneurship because we just don't fit right. Um, I used to refer to a lot of my companies as the island of misfit toys. Uh, (laughs) It's like these brilliant human beings that nobody appreciates because either they're too dour or difficult or, you know, they're always pointing out what's wrong or they're super analytical and, you know, not really human focused. (laughs) And I love these people. I think they're extraordinary. And um, it's really about working with people's gifts and and seeing their giftedness and not trying to make them be okay. Um, You know, have really polished social skills. Like why? I can do that. They don't have to. Wow. So I love that about you. You are careful to find each person's uniqueness. Um, I am one of those people that you described that doesn't always fit in. I'm not compliant. I'm not a group thinker. I don't just, I ask why all too often and it gets me <laughs> in trouble. Um, I just want to learn why. I'm not criticizing the way you're doing things. I just want to learn why did we make this choice and is there, are there other paths, you know, is there another way? Um, and that's just the big mind thinking. Um, Absolutely. And I think there in our culture, there's this idea that you need to be fixed, that we all have to sort yeah. of get fixed. And, um, you know, they, you know, I'm of the age where they corrected our hands when we drew a road or they put lefties into righties because of scissors and, um, wow. you know, stupid reasons like that. And having dyslexia and not being able to read until very late age, my reading comprehension really didn't fully come online until I was 20. I was already in college. And so, um, you know, most of my family and people around me didn't have like, oh, Kelly's going to go out and be successful. <laughs> I mean, my, my college essay was about my dad teasing me that I, I better learn how to weld. And like, well, well why, dad? And he said, at least with <laughs> welding, you'll know what kind of work you're out of. 
And it was, you know, it's, it was true. No one could see my path was not obvious and I had to make it myself. I love you. You're amazing. (laughs) You know, that's the hardest in, in all our journeys is when, you know, you have to learn to believe in yourself because others won't, you know? So were you ever seen sort of as a dissenter or, you know? uh, Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is a really weird piece about being an entrepreneur and being female. Um, You have to have a level of disagreeableness. You have to believe that your idea is right and others are wrong. And we're not enculturated as women that way. Um, too right, often right. we swallow our tongues. We are taught to, you know, praise others and put ourselves second. And I, I didn't have, thankfully, because of a very strong mother figure, those, um, those stories in my head. So I kind of came out guns blazing. But I eventually did get enculturated. And you know, the Kelly of my 20s, which was much more brazen and full of chutzpah than Kelly of my, you know, late 40s. And I think that there's a really an important piece about us discovering our voice and our willingness to own our opinion and to have strong opinions and to be the dark cloud from some, from time to time and say, you know, that's not going to work. That doesn't work for me. What else, what else are we going to do here? I love this. So I have, I I often say, you know, people wouldn't, well, women like you and me, we wouldn't present our ideas or question authority or ask why or wonder if this way is the best way or propose a counter proposal or claim our ideas as being the best if we didn't think so. Like who's going to propose what's not, you know, the best idea in their minds at least. And people don't like that. They generally in the workplace feel you know, who does she think she is always trying to help, always trying to improve things or bringing her own ideas to the table. We've been, we've been doing it this way for 20 years. Yeah. I just, you know, that's an entrepreneurial spirit, but you're also taking this conversation to a whole new level about embracing, appreciating, um, the dissenter, the troublemaker, not necessarily. The troublemaker. Yeah. yeah. I love it. A, I love it. I'm a, trouble, I'm a troublemaker. And and we all are. All of us are. And maybe we do it more passive aggressively. <laughs> you know, maybe we just <laughs> announce things. And it's very feminine. And I totally do it. I fall and pray for I walk into a room. I'm like, it's cold in here, expecting somebody to turn up the heat and not specifying, well, could we please turn it up two degrees here um, because you know there is a whole thing to women's speak and I think this is a kind of a fascinating sidebar which is um, it is if, if I were to transition let's say or, or a man was to transition from male to female and he was doing it late in life she was doing it late in life she would have to take courses on to how to learn how to speak like a woman um, women have, and we don't recognize it because it's the water we swim in, but we have our own vocabulary and way of speaking. And most of it's very indirect. We tend to speak in subjunctive. I would like, may I please have, or speaking in like this, like it's cold in here kind of thing. These, these couch statements. Um, and so if you're transitioning and you haven't been raised to learn to speak like that, it's a very good tell, um, the word want is very hard for most women to say, I want this. And when we do it, oftentimes it lands shrilly, even if it's just a plain spoken statement. So there's a whole, there's a whole sidebar just on the language that we use that can really tie us up in knots and keep us from 
fully expressing ourselves in the way we want to express ourselves. So I don't know if you, like me, don't check out the podcast um, host before you podcast. I don't. Yeah, I always go blind. I don't want to know. <laughs> so, well, first of all, I'm of the same mindset that you want to, it, it's more authentic and real and raw if you get to know that person as the audience does. But what you don't know about me then is I teach that. I teach gender-based communication. Oh, I love it. I love yes. that so much. Yes, you are, thank you. Oh my God, you're resonating with me. So uh, my, my cheeks are burning from smiling so hard. And Yay. I was doing my best to let you finish but without in interrupting you with my enthusiasm. Um, so, yeah. I'm so grateful that you're doing that because it's, it is a rare skill and most of us are completely asleep to the language we use and how important it is to get really descriptive and really clear about our wants, our needs, our likes, our preferences, yeah. and being able to voice them into the, into the world. In a, in a way that makes, uh, so the receiver makes meaning of the message always. Correct. So, Yes, and they can hear us. Yes, exactly. And and we can make, you know, a, a, di a difference, change the, shift the landscape, I should say. Um, totally. I find women speak passively all too often. That's exactly what you're talking about rather than actively. And um, we talk about those things and we talk about the things, not, not that women are doing wrong necessarily, but things maybe that are just different, how men and women mm -hmm. speak like Italian and French are both valid languages, but if you don't speak the other language, communication doesn't take place. Exactly. I love, I love that you brought that up. That's great. Well, let's get back to you. You're one fascinating woman. I feel like um, I need to do more with you, give you um, a broader audience. I don't know, maybe we'll podcast <laughs> again, maybe we'll do an email campaign. Uh, maybe love I'll it. have you come speak at one of my events. So oh, thank uh, yeah, you. you're super fascinating. Well, what of all these amazing accomplishments would you consider your proudest and why? You know, it, it would probably be the book. Um, you know, I, I decided last year or 18 months ago, more than that now, actually, it was in fairness, three years ago to write a book. And, and the reason and the higher intention for writing the book wasn't about me or my reputation. In fact, it's kind of an inversion of that. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I've got a great bio. If anybody read my bio, they'd be like, oh, she's really accomplished. And I've got all the right, you know, check marks. You know, I've raised venture capital. I'm one of the 2.7% women annually that gets to do that and ride that, you know, crazy train. And, you know, and, and yet it's all, all of these bios are a lie. And they do a great disservice to future entrepreneurs because it's just taking the highlights of my career and telling this very, you know, you know, this very set story. It's like a, a escalator ride to the sky. You know, there was no problems. There were no setbacks. Right. And, and I think that modern media now is glorifying the role of entrepreneurship. And as more traditional jobs are going away, people are like, oh, but you can be an entrepreneur. And, and so there's also this kind of go West young man or young woman mentality of get out to Silicon Valley, you know, give it what you got. And having lived that that dream and, and, and navigated the trains of Silicon Valley and, and, and startup landia, as I call it, I, I felt like there was another story that needed to get told, which is when things go terribly, terribly wrong. What do you do? Because behind every successful entrepreneur I know, we've had terrible times. We've had awful times. Um, and so I wanted to go back in time and write a book 
essentially for myself at 29, which was when the wheels fell off for me and I hit my first professional, well, life wall really hard. And I wasn't sure I was going to survive it. And that was, um, and so that telling that story and really setting on fire my larger persona, my larger story, like just burning it to ashes yeah. and saying, here's something that's more true. Phoenix, um, rising, I see. <laughs> Well, it's like, well, I'm never going to read venture capital again. (laughs) You know, I'm like, okay, let's burn the boats. Let's tell the real story. Um, Because I I didn't want anybody out there getting about 18 months into the journey of being, okay, I'm an entrepreneur. I've got this great idea of, you know, raise some money or I'm not, and I'm going to take this to the world and change everything. For them to get to this place, which is about 18 to 24 months in, where all of a sudden they start to question their sanity. Like, why in the hell am I doing this? What was I thinking? I don't have the skills for this. I don't know. And they keep looking for the white knight to show up and rescue them like I did. And the good news is we are that knight, but it takes a lot for us to wake up to our own power. And unfortunately, the only way to really do that is to really go through some very rough times. Um, But I wanted to write a book that honored that part of the journey and and started to tear apart some of the larger myths about how awesome entrepreneurship is because <laughs> yeah. it's really hard. It's really, really hard. You know, a lot of my listeners are entrepreneurs, <clears throat> as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. And I, I would like to say that, folks, Kelly, th- I didn't prompt her to say this. Like, this is so powerful what she's sharing. When, when I host these events across the country and I invite speakers, they often want to get up there and talk about their resume, their titles, their pay grade, how they got successful with it. But they leave out all the struggles in the journey and all the potholes and roadblocks. And I tell them, no, you can't do that because then you're not relatable to the audience. You're not helping anyone who goes after you. And it's really not honest. It's not, I mean, it's not an easy, what did you say? Escalator to the top. It's not. Right. Oh, um, it's awful. <laughs> I ask them, you know, in order to, um, be have integrity and be authentic i would like you to tell your whole story how you got where you are even the bumps in the road um, because that way people have hope and they see hey that happened to her too or i felt that same way maybe i'll you know i can get through this how did she get through that and you know so i love i can't wait to buy this book thank Um, you yeah well and it's yeah, and it's and it's and it's like it's not just a practical problem; it is a life and death problem because, yeah. you know, we're right now at a fifty-year high for suicide, and we don't have numbers for entrepreneurs. We just don't. But what we do know is that, thanks to a study that was done by UC Berkeley, that entrepreneurs run the risk of depression, bipolar, ADHD, um, and anxiety at three times that of Main Street. So whether we self-select into this and/or we develop these conditions once we're in, doesn't really matter. But we are in a really, we're in a pressure cooker a lot of the time where yeah. our mental wellness and our mental health keeps getting back because everything else feels so important. And this is really crucial for women because we are already enculturated to put ourselves last. So you, you put this stuff together and people telling these dishonest stories again and again and again. And so yeah. it's crazy making, you're out there and you're failing and you're wondering why is this so hard it must be me i must be the idiot here i'm not worthy of being on this planet and the spiral goes like that and 
I'm not saying this abstractly. That was the spiral I went through starting at 29 and it lasted for three years um, where I was dealing with suicidal ideation. I was also the CEO of a very successful company, but what most people didn't know other than just like maybe two or three was that the company that had failed right before that I had personally guaranteed and was on the hook for $5 million. Oh, wow. I was 29 years old. I had a condo with maybe $50,000 in equity, and I had no idea how I was going to get out of this mess. And um, I started thinking, well, you know, it's insurance. Like, what do I do? Yeah. And and, and thankfully, you know, I had good structures around me. Um, I started going to the Center for Authentic Leadership and um, taking courses um, at the University of Chicago. Like, I just threw myself at everything, trying to figure out who how to be better, like how to, how, to, how to get through this. But the truth was, in spite of all of that, I had this horrible secret. And I felt if anybody knew that secret, they would no longer trust me as a CEO and that I'd lose everything. So I know I'm not alone. I, I mean, it's a big number. Most people don't have to deal with that kind of number. But even a small number, I see people losing their mind over $50,000 in debt. It's, it's all relative. Um, I couldn't afford that much less 5 million, but it's like, it, it's, it's all about our self-worth and our self-belief at the end of the day. And when something goes really dramatically wrong, it's very easy to take our self-belief and just turn it into confetti and throw it into the air and say, woohoo, <laughs> that's <Yeah>. over. <laughs> Kelly, I have to say you have tapped into something so personal for me. Um, we're not talking numbers like 50 million. It's not even the quantitative element. Right. It's not the, um, being an entrepreneur and, and, and it's so crazy that you're talking about this right now. I'm just like jaw dropped five minutes before we logged onto this podcast. I wrote to a dear friend who's, he's very, very high up in an organization. Um, but he and I share a very rare personality. Um, we are ENFJs. Relationships mean everything to us. We're unique in that um, in that way that we thrive on relationships. And here mm-hmm. we are. We both work from home. And I wrote to him and I said, I never realized the loneliness that comes with being an entrepreneur working from home. Yep. And it's it's very it's not just a casual statement I make. And I'm not. And I'm very much, I lead with authenticity. I share my good, bad, and ugly and everything in between. Um, but you tapped into something so highly personal that's, that's, that I'm experiencing right now. And he wrote me back his feelings about how it's so challenging um, mentally, emotionally, and physically. We have both gained a ton of weight since we've been working from home. Yeah. Uh, but I also... Yeah, it's real. It is real what you're talking about. And and the fact that you share your own story so openly is beautiful. And that to me is true leadership. That to me is um, what it means to be, you know, a C-suite, regardless of if you're running a big company or if you're an entrepreneur, be open, honest, and direct about your humanness. Um, yeah. so your employees, your partners, your clients can see, Hey, you know, that's what I'm going through too. Or how did he or she deal with that? Maybe it will help. Wow. You're one courageous woman, Kelly. And thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. Uh, you know, at some point in this interview, I was going to ask you, um, you know, what is a struggle or an obstacle that you've overcome, but that's clearly, 
a great example. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, it's a great example, but here's a, here's a great part of it. It's like you'd think you do something that epically stupid, like personally guarantee yourself to $5 million and like that would be like the story. Um, but it's not because, you know, here I am half a century in and you, you get more stories. Right. And um, my, my more recent story, which is really a big part of why the book came in and it manifested, because I don't think I would have had the courage to write the book as I did and not let it kind of get into the space of ego um, without what happened next, which was um, started about nine years ago. I started getting sick and we couldn't figure out why. Um, long stories of tests, you know, migraines, you know, with one year I was in the ER 54 times. Wow. This is when I was the CEO of a venture backed company. I told no one, which has got a lot of integrity to it, but honestly, it was all happening on the weekends. I thought that's my time. Um, I somehow held it together during the week. So it was just my poor children and husband who had to suffer. And, um, finally it got so bad. I, I, I ended up having to step down three years later after I stepped down as CEO, I ended up having to step down from the board because one day I opened my computer to work on an article I was being paid to write and my write, my writing partners from England. And so there's always some U's and Z's or S's. There's always some yeah, you know, yeah. complications <laughs> there. So I I'm reading this and I'm like, Oh, I've got no changes. That's a first. And so I'm like, huh? So I went back and I read it again and it was a completely different article. I read it again, completely different article. My brain was auto-completing what it thought should be there versus what was on the page. And wow. we all do this. We all do yeah. some form of this, you know, like you're reading along and suddenly you're five pages in and you have no idea what you actually read, but your right. version of the story is great. Um, but what had happened for me is that my reading comprehension had gotten decoupled. And, you know, with dyslexia, you know, my, I always kind of feel like it's, you know, a bit of chicken wire and, you know, glue and, you know, <laughs> duct tape or in there. Yeah. That's like holding all of this shit together. And so, excuse <laughs> my language. But I, uh, podcast. <laughs> I, yeah. So I ended up having to resign from the board because I, I could no longer read and I didn't know when it was going to come back online. And the thing was, I had a new startup. I was working in virtual reality at this time. And I couldn't work. I couldn't read email. I couldn't schedule. And so I took a six-month sabbatical from a startup, right? Now, that's a big deal. Yeah. And, um, and what happened was I went to bed. Like, I, I was so sick. And we couldn't figure out what was wrong. All we knew was I was getting terrible migraines and all this stuff. But I couldn't listen to podcasts. I couldn't read. I couldn't watch TV. So I'm just stuck in this space. And that was where I started just going back over my career and I had the opportunity to sense make. And so it started out with me, um, you know, using the voice memos app on my phone and catching ideas to eventually hiring somebody to, to, and an organization to like put it around me, to interview me, to get the stuff out. And, um, and then I was also making music at the same time. I would start to hum and sing into my phone because that was all I had to do to entertain myself. So at the end of this period, we found out that we had toxic mold in our house and that it was off the charts. Wow. So the place I was going to get well was making me sicker. And um, that it was, it was a brain injury that I was dealing with, a toxic mold that we had was, was neurotoxic. 
And, um, and I was like 52 times like the, the high level. I mean, it was pretty insane. We sold our stuff. We sold our house. We remediated it first because I didn't want yeah. that karma. Um, and in the process, as soon as I got out of the house, it started getting better. I was able to work with the team. We rewrote the book from scratch, but I also had put down several songs. And so I started working on an album as well. So it was that book. I'm the most, and to answer your question, I'm most proud of that thing because I don't think I could have done it without that traumatic health experience. Right. And at the same time, I'm also most proud of the fact that I'm finally owning up to my music, which I've put on the back burner for my entire life and told myself terrible stories about my artistic abilities. And I'm super proud of the music that I'm creating. And it's really good. <laughs> and I'm co-conspiring with other friends and at, you asked to share some pictures and I've got pictures of us on stage right when we, before we performed and uh, my friend Lex Allen, who's a well-known artist um, who sang on one of my songs and then performed with me uh, at a, at a recent event. Um, so I just kind of changed who I was dramatically in the last three years as I, as I, I started to sense make about who I was as an entrepreneur and then get really intentional about who do I want to be now in right. this world and where can I be most of service? Cause I'm really sick of the whole legacy talk around like just giving away my money. Like, sure. That's a part I, but charitable giving has always been part of what I've done. I want to do it with great intentionality. I want to, I don't want to just give money away. I want to do it with the right intention behind it. And to ensure that it's, it's furthering not just my dreams, but the dreams of others. Um, and so that's the, that's the very long answer to your question. No, it, it, it is beautiful. I love that you're so raw. Um, it's refreshing and it's what I seek in people that I surround myself with. And you tapped on so many, you know, very deep, you hit some nerves there. And it seems to me like with your intentional giving, people don't usually think about that. They give to check the box, you know, it mm -hmm. looks good. It's another thing in your resume or your CV. Um, no, I, I get what you're saying. You should own your story. You should own your every action, be mindful of your every choice and make it, um, you know, one that fulfills you. I mean, I believe in loving self first or else you can't love others. Mm -hmm. um, totally. Yeah. So I've seen the disaster of, you know, people who try to love others or get others to love them, but yet they don't love themselves first. It's just not going to work. It won't um, work. And it's, and it's so easy to say that. And it's so freaking hard to do. Like, you know, there's this entire world that seems out there to tell us how, how much we fall down particularly yeah. as women, right? Like you can't open a magazine without seeing that your pores are too large. You can't walk down the street without wondering if you are too heavy. Um, everything is screaming at you from the billboards to the radio. It's all of this stuff. And men are just starting to feel this just a tiny bit with the yeah. whole, you know, penis enlargement stuff and, you know, like, and, and Viagra commercials, like they're finally getting a little taste of what we have on every channel. So Edward, it's Edward maddening. Yeah. Edward Bernays, the father of propaganda. He was the uh, nephew of Sigmund Freud. He knew all too well how to play to our fears and insecurities. 
that's what people say. I wonder if he actually helped to create our fears and insecurities. Um, because you know, you don't know what you don't know. And, and right. You might be a size 16 walking down the street thinking you got it going on. And as you grow older, you see, wait a minute, the people who make money or the people who are on the TV or in the commercials or on, on the pages of these magazines, they don't look like I do. Um, mm -hmm. and then you start to redefine how you love yourself or not. Um, and we have to be really diligent, so diligent. And I'm not great at it. I'll be honest. I'm a perfectionist. I want to look great. I don't know what that means as I'm aging. Um, I know I don't want to be all worked over. I want to I want to age gracefully. What does that look like? Um, these are all really hard questions. And, and this is like a complete overlay to I also want to be incredibly competent and a good mother and, you know, all these other roles that I have. But Loving ourselves, I think, in our particular culture, particularly with social media and the yes. phenomenon of cropping, where everybody just crops these perfect images of their lives, now it's your friends that are doing it to you, too, which is even more insidious than advertising. Um, yeah, I didn't and, think about that. That's true. Um, I, I, I've come to a place in my life. So, so just a little bit to tap into what you just said. Yeah. I was the young woman who walked out of the house thinking she had it going on. Like I'm, you know, totally. I'm ready. hello world. I'm never, um, until later in life, I never even, you know, had any of what we now call imposter syndrome. I thought I could do anything. I had the relationship with my father that you had with your mother. And it, um, made me believe that, you know, I was worthy and there was no gender disparity and I could do right. anything I wanted to do. So then real life hit me later on. And, um, I became the caregiver for my mother who has Alzheimer's mm -hmm. and I packed on 55 pounds. So now I am experiencing all those things that I used to advise and counsel friends on. Oh, mm -hmm. don't, don't, don't be that way. Don't worry about love yourself. Da, da, da. It's <laughs> yeah. It's hard. It's like, okay. It's really hard, right? It's really hard. And you can't change someone's behavior by telling them, Oh, just love yourself. Or I think Doesn't you're beautiful. Work. Oh, I think you're beautiful. My yeah. husband has a playlist. Like I will tell him, I, I trained him over the course of our 20 years together, how to give me a compliment. And, it, and he was so bad at it. In the beginning, it was, you look good in this light. And I borrowed it from a, a radio show that I'd heard about somebody whose husband had autism. I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. And she had trained him to give her compliments and he could do, you look good in this light. I gave it to Jeff. <laughs> That's awesome. that, and he, you know, within a year, he started to move from, you know, like you look very good in this light and he started to add some creativity today. He's awesome at compliments, but my point is it doesn't matter. Like right. I'll say, look, I need the playlist of you are the most awesome woman in the world. And he will sit there for half an hour and tell me I am the most awesome woman in the world. And you know what? It doesn't change a damn thing. Yeah. And I think a lot of us have the story, if I only had a spouse who supported me, if only I had my husband that would compliment me regularly, if only I had blah, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. Then it would be okay. And it's a lie because the right. only opinion that really matters is ours. And that's what yeah. almost none of us are intentional about shifting and changing is, can we overwrite the operating system that got laid down whatever time that tells us these horrible stories that we're not okay? Can we? Yeah. And the answer is yes, we can. It's just really hard. And you have to be super diligent and very intentional about it. And most of us, we're on autopilot. We're just kind of cruising through our days. 
So that's the really hard piece of getting people not just to wake up to it, but being willing to do the hard work, which I mean, I'm in it, I'm doing it. And it sucks. It sucks. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to lie. Like it's like a bad diet. Like it's like, Oh, I can't eat this. Are you telling me I can't eat? Yeah, I'm telling you, you can't eat that, right? Um, Like in the military, they say, embrace the suck. (laughs) You have to embrace the suck. Like, and then someday I hope it doesn't suck as much. But what I do is every day I write aphorisms and and the handwriting, the piece of it is really important for me. And I had to work really hard to figure out what operating system rewrites I needed to do. And so mine don't pertain to anybody else, but I'll share just for the spirit of giving you a sense of what I do. I write uh, three three phrases every day, fifteen times each phrase. One of a, one of them is I'm enraptured with life. Um, the other is I am joy embodied, wow. and the third is I am a powerful and gifted artist whose work impacts others positively and profoundly. Um, yeah, these are beautiful, yeah. Kelly. Um, hang on, let's think about this. Yeah. I want to bring the audience attention to those three affirmations that you just said. They're very powerful. Um, What struck me um, is not just like the words create pictures in our minds, the words you Mm -hmm. use. For example, this country, we know entertainment all too often. We know entertainment, but so rarely do we know joy. You know, we're busy with being entertained or stimulated, but do we know true joy? So I'd like you to repeat those three affirmations for anyone listening. Um, they're very powerful. Say them again. Thank you. So the first one is I am enraptured with life. And um, just background on that is I always have felt not safe in my environment. I'm like one of almost every woman that I know who's got sexual trauma in their background. And so I'm always searching for my own safety and life always feels out to get me at some level. And I decided I wanted to dance with it. Um, that no matter how bad it gets, I'm still enraptured with it. Um, and it's also got that sort of sexual sound to it, that, that tone of like, I'm in love and enraptured with life. And that was on purpose. And the reason is it's, it's about trusting my environment and trusting life. Um, and that I need that foundational safety to really go to the next one. And so, yeah. So the next one is I am joy embodied. Um, most people who've met me would say that, Oh yeah, you're totally joy embodied. And I'm not, um, I'm positive. I'm enthusiastic. I'm a cheerleader. Um, but sometimes it can get very decoupled from reality. Um, it's a cover that I can use to smooth over social situations or awkwardness. It's a, it's a device I can use to help myself get through hard times, but it isn't actually access to joy. Access to joy, in my opinion, in my experience, and I have had this happen, um, is revealed when anxiety falls away. And as a naturally anxious human being, Anxiety is usually my top note. I'm typically feeling overwhelmed, which means joy isn't even in the party. Like it's not even invited. And I discuss, so I've had times where it's broken through. And the only time it really breaks through is when I'm so in flow with what I'm doing and or I'm completely and utterly in service of other people. If it's one of those two things, joy is the, is the, just shows up. It doesn't care. It doesn't care that it wasn't invited. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
So, and I do have a role model. My aunt, uh, Miriam, who I write about in the book, uh, she is joy embodied and she's had a very tough life. But if you met her, you'd think it's been all roses and sunshine. But, you know, my, my aunt has lost two of her three children and yet she sparkles. There's something magical about her and it has everything to do with how she understands her reality and makes sense of it and also how she's of and constantly in service of others, not in a needy way, but in a way that is truly loving, if that makes sense. It's, oh, there's a difference. Totally. I think my life's purpose is to live in service of others. And that's not because I'm the, um, what, what the psychology definition of people pleaser, that's not it. At yeah. All. It's yeah. And I think people the- pleasers are actually need to learn how to be disagreeable and need to get angry. (laughs) They have to go, they have to go through their whole another, they're on a different journey. Like people pleasers. I've got so many in my family. That's a totally different, that's a different thing. It's, 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 you know, but when you see people in service for others and there's, they don't give a crap about the return. Right. Now you're talking. Right. That's what I believe my life's purpose is. And I try to live that every day. And, and your third mantra or third affirmation is. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a gifted and powerful artist whose work positively and profoundly impacts others. Um, I change up the order from time to time, but yeah, that's, that was a amazing. It's really a hard one for me because I haven't owned artist up until the last three years. And even saying it um, now brings up all the fraud stuff, the terror, like, am I really an artist? And I have to go back on, we're all artists. We're all creative. Um, You know, I have some work that's out in the world, but most of my work is private. Um, And that's not always going to be the case. But I believe that my artistry is truly the most important piece of my journey, that all the business stuff was me trying out my art in a different context, in a different medium, and it was never quite the right medium for me. Um, I was doing it because I was terrified of being a starving artist. I didn't have that courage Um, for a lot of reasons. My mother was, my biological mother was a very gifted visual artist and alcoholic and all of the tropes. And I got to witness up and close, what does that look like? And I did not like it as a kid. And then when I was in sixth grade, I moved to Milwaukee to live with my dad and my stepmom, who really gets the honorific of mom. She's raised me. Um, So I confuse people all the time. I talk about my moms in plural. Um, But my father was an entrepreneur. He was very, very successful. And we didn't have to worry about food. We didn't have to worry about security. Um, and I, and I chose to lean into that side. I love it. Do you live in abundance, would you say, or with a mentality of abundance and not scarcity? Does that help you get through? I wish I'm not there yet. So you know, when I was six years old, my mom uprooted me from Milwaukee in a private school in a nice home to live in the Florida Everglades. And we, and she didn't take anything with her. She was like, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make my life on my art. And so it was a riches to rag story and, and it happened at a very important time in my life. And so there's a part of me that has bag lady syndrome. I'm convinced no matter how much money is in the bank, that it's all going to go away at some point up until now, I'm 
working on this. So this mindset has been very stuck with me and I'm constantly trying to get at it. Um, and abundance is what I'm stepping into, but it is not my native setting. So everything that I'm writing about these, this operating system and why I'm writing it the way I'm writing it has to do with stepping into an abundance mindset. Um, but I have to write the, overwrite the operating system that's right there. It's, it's outmoded. It's not true. It's full of lies. But there were lies that I wrote as a child, and I didn't know better. Wow. Kelly, this is so powerful. So <clears throat> I would love to continue our conversation even after the podcast and stay connected. Um, I have Absolutely. a stepdaughter who I'm sure she doesn't want me to out her on my um, podcast, but I will say she writes poetry, she writes in a journal, and she has said to me those very things that um, no matter how successful she is or thinks she will be or can be, and she's highly creative, very artistic, super talented. I mean, in all the like visual arts, she can sing, she can paint, she can draw, she can dance, she's amazing, uh, she can play instruments. Um, she lives in scarcity like that. She, mm -hmm. she has that same. Um, you know, will I end up eating dog food someday? Um, mm -hmm. reality. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, something she's observed and taken on as her own, or she literally feels it from the inside out. Is it outside in or inside out? I don't know, but um, well, it is a cultural trope. I mean, the starving yeah. artist is something that people really believe is a thing. And so I had this example and then I had the culture that reinforced it and it's not true. People can be very successful as artists. Um, we just don't necessarily celebrate it or hold it up as such because it doesn't, or even see it because that's not the lens that most of us wear. We wear the, oh my God, my child's a poet. What, are we, what am I going to do? Exactly. Um, they're going to be a barista for the rest of their life. Exactly. No, but David White is a great example of somebody who is a, who left a career as a naturalist, became a poet, and that is who he is. He is a poet, but he is a very well-known speaker, writer, um, and, and author. And so he figured out how to be a successful poet that makes money and has corporations pay him a lot of money to show up and talk about poetry. So we just have to know where to look. Um, none of these things are true, uh, right. but they feel true because it's part of the water we swim in. Wow. This has been one of the most impactful, if not the most impactful, podcast I've hosted. Um, I, I have a friend in New Jersey who's a world famous PR diva and I had a podcast with her and we were at about 30 minutes and she started to really open up like you did from moment one. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you know, let's not close out now. Let's go. Let's see where this goes. I never cut anyone off, but I looked at the um, clock with her and we were into an hour and 12 minutes and I was just gobsmacked and dumbfounded and jaw dropped and that's how I've been with you since we said hello um you you had me at hello to be corny <laughs> <laughs> so your story is amazing I think you have many stories and I think you're still finding out who you are by letting yourself reveal herself to you yeah, absolutely. Wonderful way of saying it. Like, I don't think any of us are, we're not done until the day the dirt hits our face and, yeah. and who we show up at any age is our choice. And so I'm, that's that whole piece of intentionality. I'm choosing to show up words and all, and I'm very intentionally choosing to show up as an artist opposed to as an executive. 
um, for the first time in my life because the executive was a really great way of just like putting up some airs and armor and, and a great way of having nobody ask any interesting questions of me. Um, right. Oh, that's a, I've never thought about that, but that's true. When you just spit out all the buzzwords and the labels and the titles and the things we use to describe someone else's idea of what success looks like, then we are, we're volunteering not to, to be our authentic selves and just, yeah, you gotta live up to that. I gotta live up to that, you know, persona. And I, I don't, and I, it's just not interesting to me anymore because that person isn't, isn't really here anymore. Well, you've grown spiritually is what I call it. So, um, you're more spiritual. I'm trying. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I've read a lot of David Rico. It sounds to me like you have, um, I haven't. Sure. I don't know who David Rico is. Oh, awesome. He's a Jungian psychotherapist, um, and he's written several books, but one of them is called Dancing with the Shadow Side, mm. and How to Be an Adult in, in uh, Spirituality, How to Be an Adult in Relationships, um, many, many good, good books that that resonate with me, just like your comments on this podcast have resonated with me. Um, I don't know. I think we are on to something here, sister. <laughs> Thank you. I agree. This is a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for, for inviting me. You're so welcome. I have a feeling that if there are any courageous women who are willing to um, show up fully as you do and as I try to do, uh, they might want to reach out to you. So how would they do that if they wanted to reach you? Sure, please. So I'm, I accept LinkedIn requests all the time. Um, and I try very hard to answer, uh, you know, people via LinkedIn. A really great way is I have a website um, for the book, which is lostinstartuplandia.com. It's lostinstartuplandia.com. There's a newsletter that I have not actually done much with, but you can sign up. And then if there's new news or I start, if I start to finally like make sense of all these things that I've been talking about and start to put them out in newsletter format, they will be the first people to know. Um, and let's see, that's really the best way. I'm also on Twitter from time to time, um, but I'm, I'm really ratcheting back my social media. Mostly it's LinkedIn these days. Gotcha. I think that's what most of my listeners would um, gravitate toward anyway. Um, but we are going to publish as many pictures, any videos you'd like. We're going to publish oh, a sure. book your headshot, but I also like to publish, and I, and you sent me these pictures that tell the story of you. I don't believe any woman's headshot tells her story, much like what we just said about the, um, you know, the, the resume, the titles, the labels, the names, that that's not who you are. That's what you do. Um, so I'm excited to share more about you in the blog and then sync this podcast into that blog so that people get a, a more robust, um, feeling for who you are and, and not just what you do, but who you are. And I think that's your remarkable woman. And I'm so Thank glad you shared yourself with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm just grateful to be here. Well, thank you everyone for listening and we will see you next time. Have a great day.